Hey, it's Guy here, and you're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MKT Call. It's a video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday, live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we are joined by Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young from SoFi for their investment analysis. So check it out, and if you like it, follow at Market Call on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media on YouTube so you never miss an episode. All right, it's Monday. It's September 26th. You're watching Market Call. That is MKT Call. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined by Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Carter, welcome, Hello. man. How are you, buddy? That, How was hey, weekend? my weekend was good. I was in Boulder, Colorado. You ever been out to Boulder, Colorado? I've been to Boulder, Colorado. So you it's weren't beautiful- watching Yankee baseball. No, I wasn't. But they had a, they had a heck of a weekend. I know you started the weekend out up there in the Bronx there. Yeah, they're coming. I think Guy Adami, while he was away, the kids did play. They started doing a little bit better because his August was not great into September. And he says... And he says, if you watch Market Call, if you play Market Call Bingo, I'm sure he, I'm sure it's somewhere in there that we don't start tracking the record for the Yankees until September. Well, we did. It started getting a little bit better. All right, we'll, we'll get into that with Guy when he gets back here. But Guy will be back tomorrow. So, Carter, again, thank you for being here. You did some heavy lifting over the last couple of weeks. We appreciate that. We also appreciate FactSet. They are the sponsor of this fine program. They are our data partner. They are financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. So thanks to FactSet. And of course, thanks to our production partners, Open Exchange. All right, Carter, listen, you know, the market call assumes that we're going to talk about lots of different markets. We're going to spend a lot of time on stocks, but we got to start with what's going on in yields. We've been talking about yields. It seems like as much as we've been talking about stocks, for the last, I don't know, year or so here. Talk to me a little bit about the steepness of this uptrend in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, the breakout above that level from the summer here. It feels a bit like a blow-off. I'm just curious your thoughts here because I am positioned for rates to come in. I started putting that position on via long the GOVT. You've been talking about the TLT as a way to express that. Are we getting close? It has to be. I mean, the one thing to note is that it's it's not that if you look at the duration of the chart that you have here, right? It's yeah. not that it's that steep. It's that there's no there's no debate in the line, right? And what I mean by that is even in other periods and other securities, typically you get these drawdowns. The drawdowns here one day, two days, and then it just marches higher. And as you've depicted there, the angle of the line is changing ever so slightly. And to be fair, that's an arithmetic, so a log, it wouldn't quite show as much of a, a torque here towards the end. But yeah. everyone is, is staring at this, wondering how far can it go? The one thing about so-called overbought or oversold conditions is the biggest surges higher and lower come from overbought and oversold. So what if we thought the pound was oversold two days ago, right? Yeah. Or what if we thought the market the dot-com market was overbought in January of 2000. Well, February and March, it went a lot higher. So it always is a little bit dangerous to fade something that has epic 
sort of momentum behind it. All right. So last week, you and I were just talking about this. We've talked about it over the last week or so. You spent some time with some of your institutional clients. These are large money managers, right? And they're thinking about the macro a whole heck of a lot. Did you get a sense, though, and this is just purely anecdotal, that a lot of people, despite the move higher in yields, and we get why the two years doing what it's doing based on what the Fed is having to say. But on the flip side of that, we also see what's going on with growth and expectations for earnings. And so the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield might start to be a bit more reflective of that. Are you starting to get a sense, though, that fading yields here is becoming a consensus trade? Well, remember, it's really mandate-driven, right? So if you're running actuarial-type money and you have to produce a 7% return and you're typically in stock bond allocation, you're now moving a bit towards these more attractive yields by buying into some of the very depressed parts of the curve, whether it's the two-year or even the 10 but for the general manager, there's a small appetite in my conversations. Yeah, that makes sense. And when you talk about that, you know, the prior investor sort, that's a bit more of a pension fund, right? That has yes. to manage to something like that. All right, real quickly, let's take a look at the chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield over the last 30 years. Here is a log chart here. And you see that breakout of that really well-defined downtrend. And you see, I don't know, do you ever do this where you take out that kind of early 2020 here and you could get a sense that it was making a series of lower lows, right? But then does that gorge really matter to this chart or does it help kind of giving it its torque to kind of break out above that long-term downtrend? Well, a little bit of equal and opposite reaction. It's energy going negative and then oil surging up to where it did 130. Going negative, the equal and opposite reaction was the surge to 130. And so while one could say, so if we went that low 30 basis points on the the 10-year, I believe it was, Does that mean this has to overshoot? To some extent, it already has. But we do know that the strength has interrupted the sequence. Going back to the 1970s, certainly 1980s, where you've drawn the peak in the Volcker era, it was an unrelenting series of lower highs and lower lows. We now, for the first time, have a higher high, right? We're above where we were in 2018. Yeah. Still, you know, how much more? It often can go further than the imagination will allow. Yeah. So just real quickly to reset my trade here, buying the GOVT, that's the iShares, you know, uh, US Treasury ETF and is across the curve here. And it's really, I guess, if I'm just looking at this long term, you know, 10 year chart, I think, you know, very close to 4%. Maybe we get a check pack to 3% and that would be a nice little trade here. That's how I'm playing that. Another one that we've spent some time talking about, and this is a really important one to get right. If you're thinking about investing in the stock market or putting new money to work or thinking about risk managing existing portfolios, I mean, what's happened in the the U.S. dollar and commensurate with a lot of these currencies that are pegged to it. I mean, it's pretty amazing. I have a chart here, Carter, of the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index going back to, let's call it late 2017. And I wanted to highlight this period in early 2020 when we had the pandemic and the lockdowns and all of the uncertainty around that. It's really interesting to see the knee-jerk reaction first was to sell the U.S. dollar. Then it was to buy it and break it out of a multi-year range. But then once it became very clear that we were going to really be, you know, I mean, rates going to zero and all the fiscal and the monetary stimulus, you know, you see what happened there. You had this huge move from above 100, where it had not been in a very long time, down to just below 90. And then when it seemed like we were coming out of
out of this thing and the U.S. might be best positioned relative to some other regions in the world. And then obviously what happened this year with Russian invasion of Ukraine and the weakness in Europe and subsequently what will likely be a recession, you see what's happened here. I mean, I think probably a lot of your commentary about yields would probably be applicable to what's going on here in the dollar. But this is this is kind of getting a little much here. And just so you know, I am positioned you know, bearishly in the UUP, the ETF that tracks the U.S. dollar index. Thoughts here, Carter? Well, so it's, it's two things, obviously. At any given time, pattern interpretation is just one thing. It's where you are in relation to where you've been, right? Current price or level juxtaposed against past level. Yep. Given this chart, the question is the sequencing. All important ascents or descents are punctuated by, characterized by counter trend moves. Enron, all the way down to zero, had these big counter trend rallies. Well, the dollar, all the way to infinity here, has pullbacks, checkbacks to trend. We're due for that. What's harder is to figure out whether the entire move is finished or not. And that's probably not the case. Yeah. All right. One last question here on the Dixie. When you pull this thing back to, you know, 2001 or so, and you see where this, you know, again, this index is made up of almost 50% euro or so. It was always heavy euro. The euro had its day 20 years ago, not so much now here. And if you look at this chart, this is a 20 year log chart. Again, I mean, you see how steep this is. I mean, this thing could make a beeline to 120 and it wouldn't be anything. I know that you would probably much prefer a little bit of a back and fill here. Thoughts when you see a chart like this? I drew that line. It's arbitrary. I'm just trying to show you the all-time highs from 20 years ago. Anything to do here? And how are you positioned or how are you thinking about being positioned in the Dixie? Right. So for basically almost three years from June of 2000 to June of 2002, where kind of the red line is drawn, there was a lot of backing and filling at the dollar index. We know, of course, this is well off the all-time high, which was the Plaza Accord back in 85, where they literally intervened. So do we have to get to that red line? It's as good a bet as any. But it's all about this. Remember, the biggest players are not just in or out. That's what we can do individually. But you're making incremental decisions. Hey, let's reduce our exposure to the dollar here goes up a little bit more, let's reduce our exposure some more. It's not just now, sure, there are hedge funds that are trading. Today we're short, today we're long. But it's more about the incremental judgment. As it gets steeper, do we continue to reduce exposure if we were running a large, important piece of money? Yeah. All right. Let's go to the stock market here because this one is near and dear to my and your hearts. You know, what's fascinating about periods like this is like, listen, you and I, we go on CNBC almost, you know, a few days a week. We do this market call. We do podcasts. You do all this fine work that you do for your institutional clients and your retail clients. And you have to be convicted, right? You have to kind of, you know, do your work and kind of lay it out there. And when you're wrong, you you kind of, you know, do a postmortem and you figure out why you're wrong and, and you try not to make the same mistakes again. I think that, you know, Wall Street strategists, I think, you know, viewers of Market Call, they know your opinions on setting these sorts of targets. They all seem a bit arbitrary. One that I think is very good and I've known for an awful long time is Mike Wilson, and he's been unusually bearish all year long. And it's really hard to be a strategist at a major U.S. bank and be bearish, right? It just it just doesn't work most of the time. Mike's been right for the right reasons, in my opinion. It's also a period where we're seeing a lot of these strategists who had very bullish outlooks at the start of the year now at the lows or a match low. And, and these are a lot of people who did not think we'd be making a match low, let alone a new low. And we haven't done that yet. We're going to talk a little bit about that. You know, you're starting to see some of these targets get adjusted. That's good if you're a longer term or an intermediate term bull. You know, you want to see some capitulation. David Rosenberg, though, lastly, I'll just say this, is that, you know, Rosenberg Research, I mean, he thinks we're building towards an October. 
October 87 crash. Now, here's the deal. I'll just say this is that David, you know, was early on the financial crisis. I was at Merrill when he was there. He was calling it out. The way he laid it out is exactly how it played out for the most part. Timing was a little early. When you make a big call like that, you're going to be early. I think it's really hard to make an October 87 sort of crash call here. But just thoughts and all of the jacking of all these strategists and what it means to you from a sentiment standpoint. The strategist's job is to do something that's not doable, right? The, well, yeah. Look, the economist tries to predict payrolls every month or yep. what the PMI is, the CPI or GDP, and there's a little bit to it. But the strategist making a target on the S&P. Some are doing it from a top-down basis, which is just extrapolating a trend. And mm-hmm. some are trying to actually take all of the analyst estimates, either from their own company or using something like a fact set bottoms up, and then coming to an EPS figure for the market and a price target. But I will point out this, that as long as data has been tracked of all Wall Street strategists, never once, hard stop, has Wall Street predicted that the year ahead would be down. They're yeah. bulls. That's their job, right? No, Which, I, your point, makes someone like uh, Mike Wilson here and now stands out as being willing to, what, fight the tape. And here's why they're bullish. Just think about it. It's job security. Markets go up yeah. 70% of the time. And shorting is a very small esoteric part of the market. All the big pinch bends are long, all the big endowments, yep. all, all the museums and churches and synagogues and whatever. The money is long and all the mutual funds. Yeah. And so shorting, people don't want to hear it. it, it it's un-American. And so it's very rare that someone will get out there. And be, here's why. Think about it. If you say it's going to go down and the market goes up, people say, man, you were just being pessimistic. And that was a waste of time. If you're bullish and it goes down, you're like, well, everyone was bullish. We were all yeah. bullish. You have the cover of, hey, hey. So... Look, the strategist thing is, is not my thing. And I can only tell you this. I started as a strategist doing only that. At Donaldson no, I, I get it. And I just, it's why I went to technicals. I met someone inside the strategy group that was only technicals. I was like, you know what? That's the better answer. Yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate your view on it because you did the job. And I, you also speak to a lot of big institutions who also speak and to the a lot of strategists. And the strategists at those institutions. Yeah. And my point is, is that I think that they're really useful as a guide. I think they're really useful from a sentiment standpoint. I know that everyone else is looking at their headlines and looking at their reports and talking to them. So to me, I find it very useful. But again, I don't make any decisions based off what anyone says. Let's just look at this S&P chart for a second here. One of the things that's really interesting, you saw a lot of headlines over the weekend, Carter, about just like yesterday or Friday, excuse me, the trading day was like highest put volume in history, in history. When you see that sort of thing, I mean, obviously... It has the negative, the opposite sort of effect here. You know, we have this match low. We're contending with it. Today's a big day here. You see that downtrend that's obviously been in place here. You had a tweet out yesterday in a report on worth charting, and you wanted to broaden out just the U.S. equity market here to the MSCI world. But talk to us how you're thinking about this and how we're going to kind of bring it back to the S&P because, again, we're very S&P 500 focused here, but it's really important to get some broader context of what's going on in all world equities. Right. So we're all watching, staring at, looking at the June 16, 17 low and wondering, do we break or don't we? There's no oscillator that's going to help you figure that out, right? There's no magic formula of overbought. What there is, is trying to study the internals of the market. And the S&P, yes, is right at its low, but the Dow Jones Transportation has already undercut that low. The semiconductor, the Philadelphia Sox has already undercut that low. Most of Europe and Asia, if you look at any aggregate, you can see here on the screen, have undercut that low. High yield bonds, JNK, HYG, so forth and so on. And that's the issue. 
the presumption is that those that haven't broken will do what the others have already done, which is break. And that gets you downside levels that are meaningfully lower from here. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's talk about it here a little bit because the S&P, again, in your note, you say we're, we're 8%. We're going there. It just depends how we get there a little bit, right? I mean, again, we broke right through at that MSCI all world, right? At that mm-hmm. prior pre-pandemic high, which was the June low, and we're through that now. What's your thoughts? I mean, when I'm looking at the market today, we had a little bit of a bounce. I stepped off my my desk for a little bit. I had to do a podcast. I get back. I was looking for an opportunity. Just so you know, so I've been long QQQ puts. I've been trading them tactically over the last few weeks against some longs as I'm adding into them. And, and you know, again, those have been working out really well. I covered basically selling them on Friday's afternoon because I thought maybe we'd get a little bit of a bounce. You know, again, this is not for everybody. Trading markets day to day like this can get a little cute, especially doing long premium directional in the options market. So you got to really kind of be quick on your feet here a little bit. But I basically bought some more this morning, you know, after we were up a little bit, because that failure, man, this should have really caught some steam. And I got to tell you, Carter, the longer we stay red on the day here in the S&P and the NASDAQ, I feel like the worst we're going to close today. Thoughts on that on a very near term basis? Because again, I was thinking maybe we bounce two, three percent and then you lay them out and then they flush through. Right. So we're green a couple times, I think, maybe today, if I remember, I've sort of been at my yeah. screens. And the problem with that is, what does it tell us? There are people still trying to call the bottom, catch the, yeah. catch a bounce. There's money that's throwing itself at this level, thinking it's a double bottom. The valid thesis, I don't think that's what's coming. And so even money today that went in becomes fuel as we go lower because it has to reverse itself in principle. Yep. No, I see that. All right, let's go to the NDX real quickly here, the NASDAQ 100, because, you know, this one, again, I drew an arbitrary line. You and I, we do not have the same skill set. You are a master technical analyst. I am just, you know, I learned a lot of what I know from you, Carter, over the last 10, 11, 12 years or so. But again, I'm a bit of a hack. I'm a bit of a hack here. No, so if the S&P, if the S- yeah, they're straight, I could do that. I got a ruler, buddy. If the S&P is 8% above its lows, okay, it's still down 23% on the year the nasdaq 100 is down 31 percent, and it's still about 13 13 and a half percent above its pandemic highs okay so when i said that sorry i misspoke the s&p is still seven or eight percent above its pre-pandemic high of 3430 the nasdaq the ndx the nasdaq 100 it made a pre-pandemic high before it crashed right below 10,000. Well, 11,000 is that straight line. You see that, Carter? So talk to me about the NDX, and then we've got to talk about the big kahuna here. So it, it's so many ways to draw the lines, not so much the neckline that you've drawn, which is there's a massive head and shoulders top. It's yeah. a huge inverted cup and handle. But the key is that there's a precise level. You've annotated it there with the green line. And do we or don't we break? And it's like at that point, you make your bets. My bet is, and I'm confident in it, that we're going to break. And it's going to be what gives us the oversold capitulatory type moment. Yeah. All right. I'm with you on that one. All right. Here was a tweet today from Pro Shop Guy MF, Mike McMahon, .eth. He's still sticking it out there with his .eth name. I have one too, Carter. We actually have market called .eth. If you guys, there's nothing going on there, but we have it just in case it's ever important. But he said Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, NVIDIA all made 52-week lows on Friday, though the S&P 500 did not. What is keeping the S&P 500 up? You see my response. 
It's Apple. We're still well above those lows that Apple made this summer, Carter. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of Apple. Again, this little zone that the, the stock is in going back a year, it could be arbitrary. I don't know. You see the lows there, you know, 146, you know, ish or something, which is kind of in the low in this recent period. We go below there. I'm thinking that's what drives the S&P and the NASDAQ lower. But on a day like today, one of the only stocks that I see up in the entire market is Apple. What's going on here? It's a defensive asset. So consider this. Friday was a bad day, uh, as today is. Friday of the S&P 100, the 100 largest in the OEX, two were up, Lilly yeah. and Pepsi. And of the 98 that were down, the one that was down the least, Apple. You're seeing yeah. it again today. Apple fighting the tape. So it's not as though Apple's at all-time highs. Remember, Apple at its low was down 25 29%. So we'd had shellacking just like everything else but at this point whether it's because they've got the cash that we all know they have or they have this very prominent and largest investor named warren whatever the reason it's probably at this point a safe haven or considered enough to be that you're going to get relative holding up or performance yeah uh, hey, do you know, this is an honest question, do you know, does Warren look at charts? Does he care about charts? I know, obviously, he's a value investor, deep fundamental guy, but he also makes a lot of kind of snap decisions in crises sort of periods or whatever. Do you think he cares about technical analysis? No, I have some nice quotes. I think he has a certain amount of respect for it, but he does not use it as I know. Okay, fair enough. All right, let's look at another one that I think is really important here. This is JP Morgan, obviously the largest bank in the world, largest by market cap here in the US, probably in the world for that matter here. You know, we're at this kind of key level here. It had that gap over the summer, that one day gap, and it kind of filled it in. And then it really has been underperforming many of its large cap money center peers and the investment banks here. It's down the most on the year of any of them. It's down, you know, a little over 30%. And, you know, that's just in contrast to Wells Fargo down 15%, City down 26%, Bank America down 28 or so. But this one at a technical level here, and if you back it out a few years, what is this? Is this as important to you as it is to me? Because, you know, with what's going on in, in the currency markets and potentially with defaults in Europe as it relates to just the weakening economy, maybe it's energy, who knows? You know, I'm just curious to your thoughts here. If we break this kind of 105 level in JP, fill in that gap totally, where do you think this thing's going? Well, it's the same pattern again, as you see in the S&P and other aggregates. We're at the June low. We're debating, fighting whether we'll break. I think the answer is yes. So many already have. The BKX index, of which JP Morgan is the biggest constituent, already has. And so there are measured moves from here, but I think you can count at least 10% down. All right. Before we get out of here, and this one's important, you know, when you just talked about Apple as being very defensive, there's a lot of money going to that. You know, with this yield environment, when yields were really low, we saw a lot of people pieing into like higher yielders, like utilities or things meant to be sort of defensive. We saw that in the staples a little bit. Look what's happened in the XLU, the ETF that tracks the utility sector here. It was about to make a new all-time high. This is just a few weeks ago here. And you see the pace in which it's come down. It's come down 10% in a very quick manner here. You know, not too different than the S&P 500, but the correlations have been very different, right? Talk to me about what you see here and what you think this means for investor sentiment as you kind of want to broaden it out a little bit when we see correlations going to one like this. Right. So last week, they got around to energy, we know, yep. and hard, they got around to utilities. And yet, utilities are still outperforming. That's the nature as our staples in the down tape, so on a relative basis. And the 
big money knows this, that you just go defensive. It says it in page one of the manual, so to speak, yeah. the manual, and they learned it in page one at their business schools and their CFA programs, and that's what they do. And it doesn't mean you do that to the exclusion of all other things, but all things held equal, there is a reason that even as utilities are selling off Apple too, they are holding up relative to the market. On a relative basis, yeah. All right, and then the last one here would be the XLP, the ETF that tracks consumer staples. And from the highs in the spring, when it was clearly a flight to quality there, or excuse me, just being defensive, I think, if you will, you know, high valuation names were getting taken out to the woodshed. That being said, many of the names in the staples trade at 24 times earnings, you know, sort of Apple-like sort of multiple, which is well above the S&P 500 here. You know, it had a 16% peak to trough decline, had a huge rally over the course of the summer like the market did. But now here we are down about 11% or so from the highs in August. Again, that's basically what the S&P is down from those mid-August highs. But this chart looks a little different when you back this thing out here, just to my eye. Talk to me about staples lastly here. Right. So when you have something at a break juncture, let's say J.B. Morgan versus staples, the presumption is they both break. But which goes down more? J.P. Morgan. And so if you looked at a relative chart of staples to the SPY, XLP, SPY, it's actually ticking higher today yet again. So you can be in a circumstance where all things are going down. That is the circumstance we're in, which is to then stay away from the market, no new buying, take measures. But if one is mandated to be fully invested, which is the case of almost every mutual fund manager and so forth, the reason why these are holding up better because they're very concerned about J.P. Morgan and less concerned about General Mills today, which is making new 52-week highs, actually. Uh, yeah, no, it was, and, and after its earnings, and again, I mean, that, that's investors making the choice to buy those stocks right. at those sorts of multiples based on what they think is the quality of the earnings. And again, I think that on the flip side of that, some of these stocks that you can't believe are still going lower, it has to do with the fact that investors are very uncertain about that future earnings stream here, or at least in the near term. All right, last thing, Carter. Again, I don't like... Th- Throwing out that C word here, okay? But David Rosenberg, you know, he said he thinks we're building towards an 87 style crash. I mean, based on what you're looking at, the internals of the market, you look at hundreds, if not thousands of charts a week here. Do you think that's possible here? Because again, does it take a Tesla and an Apple to really join the party? Amazon's still well above its June highs here. Just thoughts there. And and then lastly, millennial market is asking quick thoughts on Tesla. Maybe kind of wrap that all up in one. And I think you and I have been in an agreement and you had that argument earlier in the summer. You know, this thing's not going to be over until they shoot the generals. It doesn't feel like they've really shot Apple or Tesla yet in a market that feels really like it wants to go lower at this point. Right. So as to the crash word, you know, I myself, for what it's worth, had that on the front page of Money in Motion last Monday. I think I've written it three times in 32 years. I do think that's a distinct possibility here. And it's what's almost needed to sort of sort of be done with it. The equity market hasn't gone lower in three and a half months. We're the same level as we were since June 15th. How much worse are things since June 15th, 16th? A lot. As to these sort of stalwarts, I mean, just tell you about Tesla. Tesla is ultimately a very expensive stock. There's kind of no way around that. Apple less so. But that's the kind of thing to look for. Does Bitcoin finally crack here and do the move to 15 or 13? Does Tesla give ground? These are the things that will tell us that we're getting closer to the end. But real crashes, for what it's worth, are almost invariably a credit related, right? A credit event. 
And that's also not showing up in the cards, but it's something to be watched. Yeah, no, and Guy brings that up. Maybe we'll hit that tomorrow and we'll hit it Wednesday with you too and really what the credit markets are saying here because, again, the longer this kind of economic malaise goes on and the pace in which rates are moving and the way the dollar is moving, the likelihood of a credit event or at least fear of it is is likely to work its way into the S&P 500 and stocks in general and the way you kind of laid it out at the top of the program. It is working into the all-world MSCI equity stock index. It's happening right now. Okay, well, listen, man, I you know I'm hoping we don't have anything like that the hyg the iShares, you know high yield etf did make new lows from those june july levels so we'll touch on that later in the week so again trade as you would say carter trade well people you know and again there's no time to be a, a hero but the likelihood of a flush at some point maybe it comes from a slightly higher level and we blow through that way but the longer we stay down today i think the less likely we are to rally unfortunately so all right carter braxton thanks for being here thank you for all the fine work that you do on worth charting just charts nothing slick we love it man thank you very much it was great to see your boy join us here yes. on market call of course thanks to our sponsors FactSet, and thanks to our production partner open exchange guy and i will be back tomorrow see you then trade well see you bye thanks carter bye.